while we've been in this hall. A miracle has happened. The Lord has turned Steve's wine into water. What a shame. Don't we like to do things the opposite way round to Jesus, hey? Who was more in the habit of turning water into wine, in fact. In regards to the name France, it was years ago um, that uh, I met an American back in England. And we, we've always had a little bit of a thing in our family that your name is your name. And whereas my parents were prone to give their children fairly long names and, you know, sort of sometimes unusual ones as well, they were always very insistent that, um, you know, that we didn't abbreviate. So my brother Christopher is Christopher, not, not Chris, although strangely enough I tend to call him Chris nowadays, but my parents were always very hot on this and, and, and so was I, particularly when I was younger. And it was actually me, one of the first times I ever met an American actually, and uh, you know, many, many years ago back in England. And, and you know, he, he, he looked at me stunned when I told him what my name was. And there was clearly a, I don't know, but what, what would you call it? Are you Americans linguistically challenged or something? It does appear that there is a genetic inability to pronounce my name, you see. So struggling, struggling with this particular thing in very American fashion, he said, well, hey, do you mind if I call you Barry? You see. <laughs> This would make me an elder berry. <laughs> okay, well, let's <laughs> let's let's dive in. Actually, um, down I, I I popped down with some of the people here to the Mexican restaurant in in Central uh, earlier. I didn't eat anything. Uh, uh, you know, I don't tend to like to eat before I teach, but. Um, I've had other people say that by the time they've heard my teaching, they wish they hadn't eaten anything either, they feel queasy. But, um, so it was, it was my intention just to have some water. Sorry, water. Okay. Water. That's how you say it here, isn't it? Water. 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 Yeah. 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 Probably guess, when Blinder and Bethy and I travel in America, we spend a lot of time real thirsty. Because no one knows what we're talking about. Anyway, we're there, we, we were down at the Mexican restaurant, and it was, I mean, all I wanted was a glass of water. Okay, I say it, okay. Now, the problem down there is that, 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 that not only was the waiter not American, he was Mexican. We now have, in South Carolina, the colliding of the English and Mexican accent. I asked quite distinctively, and I have every reason to believe that my ministerial integrity depends on you believing this. I asked for some water. Five minutes later, I get a beer. In faith, I prayed that the Lord would turn it into water. And only because I believed he would, I drank it. He didn't. And I said, thank you. <laughs> and of course, now I'm really hungry because I didn't have anything to eat. Okay. Now then, let's um, go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, I'm going to read verses 7 and 8, and then verse 11 to 13. I was also promised by Steve 
whose ministerial integrity is now in question as far as I'm concerned, that the gong was gone. I came here feeling much relieved. Now I'm terrified because I always get gonged, okay? So when you leave here tonight, only having heard a third of what I want to say, at least try and put that in the imagined context of what I would have said if I'd have been allowed to finish, all right? I, my general rule of thumb when I'm teaching is that when the last person has gone home, I begin to wind up, all right? Okay, Ephesians 4, let's, let's read verse, verse 7 to 8 first. Now Paul says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Oh, I'm, I'm using the NIV, okay? The, the nearly inspired version. But to each one of us, yes, it's true, I'm NIV positive. Okay, right. As Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now go down to verse 11. It was he, I, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Okay. Now, when we look at leadership, church leadership, in the New Testament, there are basically only kind of two aspects to it that we find there. We find local elders. Now, these are, if you like, leaders in individual churches in an immediate area, okay? But we also find what, I suppose, for want of anything else, we can call Ephesians 4 ministries. So we have on the one hand what you might call local elders, and then on the other hand we have these Ephesians 4 ministries that we've just mentioned. Now, deacons are not relevant here because deacons were administrative. They weren't actually leaders in that sense. So our only interest when it comes to leadership is local elders or these Ephesians 4 ministries. And of course the whole point about locals, about elders, is precisely that they are localised. They are elders in a particular church. However, as we're going to see, the guys being referred to here by Paul, by definition, are what I would call translocal. These are people who have a ministry, a function, that is wider than one particular church. And indeed, if you go into the context of Ephesians, the context in which Paul is teaching this, his concern is the church at large. It's not the context of individual churches, but it's just the church of Jesus Christ in its entirety, in its totality. And so, therefore, these Ephesians 4 ministries are much wider than the ministry of a local elder. Now, there are two types of spiritual gift in the Bible. We have the, the more immediately well-known charismatic gifts that Paul largely, you know, kind of in most detail, talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. Tongues, prophecy, interpretation, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, right? So we have what you might call the 1 Corinthians 12 type gifts. Now, the thing about those gifts is that the gift is given to the person. So, for instance, if you speak in tongues, well, what else can you speak in? But you know what I mean. 
If you speak in tongues, God has given you that gift. If, 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 if you lay hands on people and, and, and they're healed, God has given you that gift. So can you see, with, with that sort of charismatic gift, we have a situation where the gift is given to the person who ministers it. All right. But the other type of gift is the gift that we see here. It's the ministries that we've just read about. And the difference that I want you to see is that here, Paul says he gave gifts to men. So obviously the men are given the gift, whatever it is. But then he says it was he who gave some to be apostles and prophets, etc. Now the point I want you to understand is this. With like the charismatic gifts, tongues and stuff like that, the gift is given to the person who ministers it. When it comes to these Ephesians 4 ministries, the gift is the man himself. You see the difference? The gift is the man who has the ministry. And these men are therefore given to the church, but they're given to the church at large. And this is the point. Eldership functions in a particular church, these gifts, the men themselves are the gift, and they are given to the church at large. Hence, I'm calling them translocal ministries. All right. And of course, we've seen there are apostles, there are prophets, there are evangelists, and there are pastors and teachers. And immediately, I'm going to say that what we have here, and you'll, you'll see why my thinking is as it is on this, that we don't have a five-fold ministry here. We have a four-fold ministry. It's not that some are pastors and some are teachers. It's pastor, teacher. One person, not two. Right. Now, this talk is to do precisely with that. We're going to be looking at the pastor, teacher. But the very first thing we have to do, and this is where we have to be negative, as Dan was saying, is we've got to immediately say we've got to understand not what a pastor teacher is. The first thing we've got to realise is what he isn't. Now those of you who heard me before know that I'm always banging on, well, about something. Because <laughs> it's me, I bang on. But one of the things I bang on an awful lot is what I call my irreducible minimum for a biblical church. And fundamentally, in Scripture, what we see was true of all the churches, and it's what characterised them, it's the pattern, it's the blueprint we have in Scripture for church life. The four things are, firstly, non-hierarchical, locally raised up leadership. The second thing, and we're going to be looking at that in a minute, the second thing is that they met in houses. And the reason they met in houses was because it was all they ever needed. Because of the other things, three and four, what they did when they came together. Because when a church met, they would have a time of sharing that was completely open, participatory, everyone free to take part, sun worship, spoken worship, prayer, sharing from scripture, whatever. When you come together, each one has, Paul says. So this completely open, participatory sharing time of worship and building each other up. And then the other thing they did is that they would have the Lord's Supper, and it was a meal. It's what the Greek means. 
supper, full meal, date night, so that they would eat together. So these are the four things that constitute a biblical church, because a church is just a family. Families meet in houses, hang out together and eat together. Now, the thing to understand is that when you talk about a pastor, what do we immediately think of? We immediately think of a man who's been specially trained, brought in from the outside to lead a church. But this church does everything the exact opposite to what the Bible says. Because it's big numbers, not small. It meets in a building, not houses. It doesn't have open participatory gatherings. It's his job to do it all from the front. And you don't have the Lord's Supper as a full meal. You just have it as a kind of Weight Watchers thing. Okay. Now that's what we think of as pastor. Now the thing is, what I have just described is unheard of in Scripture. It was actually the invention of the early church fathers. That's what it goes back to. It's nothing whatsoever to do with the New Testament. So very quickly, go with me to Acts 20, because let's, let's pin this word down, pastor. I mean, teacher, that's fairly easy to handle. So go to Acts 20, because we, we really need to understand that in the way that people think about a pastor, there is no such thing in Scripture as the pastor of a church. doesn't exist. Now, in Acts 20, okay, I'm going to read very quickly verse 17 and then 28. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So he's got a group of elders. Now then, in verse 28, he says this. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, or bishops, depending on the translation you read. Overseer, bishop. Be shepherds of the church of God. And that word shepherd is the word pastor in the Greek, Romano. So what we have here, quite simply, is that we see that Paul gathers elders, and these elders are given the functions of being overseers or bishops, and also being pastors or shepherds, depending on what translation you read. So therefore we simply have that elder equals pastor equals bishop or overseer synonymous terms for the same group of people. And what else we see in Scripture is these guys, elders, pastors, bishops, overseers, whatever you want to call them, all these synonymous terms, they were always recognised from within the churches that they were then going to lead. They were locally raised up and they were plural. So what's the opposite of that? It's bringing in an expert from the outside, one person often said, depart from Scripture, you won't end up doing something different, you'll end up doing the exact opposite. And that's what we've been doing for 1900 years. Now go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll show you this again. 1 Peter 5, and he says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, we'll be back to that, and he says, be shepherds, of God's flock that is under your care, that's pastors, be pastors, and then um, uh, serving as overseers, as bishops. So again, we're simply saying all this synonymous terms. When we look at elders in the church, we just see locally raised up, recognised elders who are leading in the very churches in which they've been raised up and recognised from within. Can you get the whole point here? So therefore, elders are pastors and overseers, and we know from their qualifications that they need to be apt to teach. That doesn't mean all of them have the spiritual gift of being a teacher, but they've all got to be apt to teach. 
However, let's now go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I want to show you something absolutely fascinating. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, he says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well, dreadful translation, poistomy, doesn't mean directly. That's, you see, that's loaded with hierarchy. The Greek word there isn't, it just means guides, it just means those who go before you, all right? But it says, some are being worthy of double honour, and the context here is actually financial. And he says, especially those whose work is in preaching and teaching. Now what Paul refers to here is that there are some men who are elders who are especially gifted as being teachers. And what Paul here talks about is the possibility of these guys being released into a full-time ministry, worthy of financial support. Not wages. Biblical churches don't employ anyone. Right. But the point is that there's the possibility of these guys being released so that they've got the time they need to commit to the calling that God has given them to. And the point is... That here, and obviously the context of one, one Corinthians, uh, sorry, the context of chapter five here is Paul is talking about the groups of people who are um, legitimate objects for your giving. He talks about the widows, and in that context, he talks about men who have a full-time calling. They are the legitimate object of your giving, should it be you so decide. They're never going to ask for money. They're never going to charge. But can you see what we've got here? Are elders but who are teachers and who can be released into full-time ministry because these are the pastor teachers that Paul talked about in Ephesians. And if they're going to have an element of travelling in what they do, well then one, they need time to be able to do the study and preparation in order to be teachers, and there's no way you can hold a job down if you also have to be able to be free to travel here and there. So what we have here are the pastor teachers of Ephesians um, 4. And what we have here is the crossover between localised eldership and the more what you might call apostolic type ministries, which to whatever extent are translocal. Okay. Now let me let me say that there are two categories, two types of translocal ministry. The first one is what I'm going to call, uh, if you like, the hardcore apostles. Now, what the hardcore apostles would do is that they would actually go into an area that had never been evangelized. They would bring people to the Lord and then they would train them up, form them into churches, look after them until they had their own recognised leadership, then the apostles would move on and do it somewhere else. They'd come back and help if you needed it, but then they'd move on and do it somewhere else. So the point about those guys, by definition, they're never at home. They're living where they're ministering. Can you see they are travelling ministries all the time? By definition, because they're opening up an unevangelized area, training those people long term, maybe six months, maybe three years, whatever, until they're strong churches, and then they move on and go do it somewhere else. So we see, you know, Paul, Timothy, Titus, these are what I'm calling the hardcore apostles. And do you know what was true of all of them? They were single men. 
course they were. You can't do that and be married. How do you hold a marriage together if you're never at home? So we see with that that we have single men. So there are translocal ministries like the hardcore apostle type who are always traveling. They are virtually entirely translocal. And, and of course, here's the point. They're not elders at a church back home because they're never there long enough to be able to function as such. But the other type of translocal ministry, and this is what we're going to be homing in on, okay, is um, what we see in Peter. Because I don't know if you noticed that when we read what Peter wrote to the elders, Peter said, I write to you elders as a fellow elder. Unlike Paul, unlike Titus, unlike Timothy, unlike the hardcore, constantly travelling apostolic ministries, Peter was an elder somewhere back home. Now what that tells us is this, Peter certainly had a ministry wider than one church. But he was an elder at a church back home because that's where he was most of the time. So he was a sometimes travelling ministry. And why? Because he was married. And in 1 Corinthians 9, when Paul talks about the rights of an apostle and stuff like that, when referring to the, the translocal ones who are married, like the Peter, that category, the ones who are elders in a church back home somewhere, he says they have the right to bring a believing wife when they do travel. They're traveling some, and they're able to take their families with them. That's why Belinda and Bethany and I always travel together. But most of the time we're at home. Can you see? Because I'm a married man, family comes first. And again, one of the tragedies of when you do church unbiblically is that you can end up with destroyed or neglected marriages because married men are so taken up with travelling around in ministry all the time. You see, they're neglecting their families. Completely wrong. Completely wrong. And so what we're seeing here is that the pastor-teacher, okay, of the Ephesians 4 ministries we're talking here, not the hardcore apostle going in evangelistically. Here we're talking about a guy who is coming in to whatever circumstance and he's helping already existing believers who he hasn't necessarily led to the Lord. You see? So two types of apostolic ministry. Hardcore apostles travelling all the time, single men, living wherever they're ministering at any one time and then moving on, okay? But we have those translocal ministries who are usually at home, therefore they are elders in a church that they're part of week by week, but who do some travelling and wherever possible would therefore be taking their families with them. This is the pastor-teacher of Ephesians 4. Now we've got to take a little digression here and it's going to be quick but it's important because what we see in scripture is that biblical churches need to have input and tie-ins outside of themselves. The danger is isolation and introversion. That is always wrong. It is true that each individual biblical church is autonomous in that it is self-governing through the consensus of its people. No question of that. 
Therefore, that makes each church independent in the sense that Jesus is directly their head. No hierarchical mediary is needed. This is why there's no hierarchy in biblical churches. Well, because there is a hierarchy, Jesus and everyone else. You don't need any other hierarchies. That's why leaders are not hierarchical. Okay. But just because churches are independent, which is correct, does not mean that they are not also interdependent. Can you see the point? They exist as individual churches, and that's right and proper, but should be doing so in relationship to other churches. Okay. So therefore, we see in Scripture that churches could come together, whether locally, like in Jerusalem, to sort out the problem that they said, hey, we need deacons, okay, or when they needed in Acts 15 the circumcision thing. I mean, loads and loads of individual churches could come together in Jerusalem and sort that out. But more than that, we see Paul taking collections from churches all over the then known world to give to the Jerusalem church when they were going through a time of real poverty. So can you see whether on the local level or even an international level, individual churches could nevertheless, as the Lord led, not as a hierarchy said, as the Lord led, could nevertheless coordinate together when it was needed. But the point is nothing to do with hierarchy. But the thing is that these Ephesians 4 translocal ministries are part of the organizational means that at least something like that can happen. But I repeat, not because these translocal ministries are in any way hierarchical over churches. They're not. But where churches believe the Lord wants them to coordinate together, then it's these translocal ministries that can be the organizational means of it. But it is always based on the consensus of all the believers involved. So let me give you a quick uh, formula here. Any decision that needs making that affects just the church making it is made on the basis of the consensus of that church. But any decision that is made that involves a multiplicity of churches moving together, whether it's two churches or 20 or 200, then those decisions are taken on the basis of the consensus of everyone in all those churches. There's never a time when hierarchy steps in and dictates. It is always on the basis of the consensus of all those believers involved. So if it's just one church, it's down to them. But if it's multiple churches moving together in an issue, then they have got to come to a consensus together. Because it's always the gathered church, whether individual churches or multiple churches together, it's always the gathered church that makes those decisions. But the point I want you to see is that these translocal ministries can be the means of helping individual churches to be tied in with what the Lord is doing wider than just themselves. Because as I say, wherever you get isolationism, wherever you get introversion, you have something going wrong. And interestingly, some people say, oh, well, if you do church like that, you're just going to be introverted. No, you're not. Any, any church that gets introverted, do you know what they're doing? They're being unbiblical. You see? 
If we stick to scripture, we'll overcome these things. But can you see outside translocal ministries, as long as you understand that they're not hierarchical in any way at all, can be a great help in, in, in keeping us realizing, especially at this pioneer stage, where there might not be another biblical church for 200 miles. It'll help us not feel too lonely and too isolated. It'll keep us tied in with what the Lord is doing on a wider uh, aspect. Okay, end digression there. Now we've got to really home in on the pastor-teacher. Okay. And we're going to ask, okay, so what does the pastor-teacher do? Remember, we've seen that we're talking in the context of translocal. Here is a guy who's an elder back home. But because he has a gifting that can bless more than just the church he's in, his church will share him out. So therefore, he has a function that can bless churches more widely than just where he is at home. Predominantly, he will use the gift to bless the church he's part of at home, obviously. But he can be shared out some of the time and go and bless others. So that, that's what we're looking at. So let's ask, when a pastor teacher is shared out, what does he do? Well, I don't know, it might not surprise you to realise, well, he pastors and he teaches. But that doesn't really answer the question enough. So let's take each bit. Okay, he teaches. All right, what does he teach? Well, I mean, in the simplest terms, he teaches the Bible. He teaches what Paul called the whole counsel of God. He's not a one-subject man. He'll teach. It will be in his capacity. I'm not saying that he understands everything in the Bible. That would be ridiculous. The entire gathered church throughout history might just be able to understand the entire Bible. But not any one ministry. But the point is he's got a good enough grasp to be able to teach the whole counsel of God. And in his teaching, it's going to be a mixture. On the one hand, he's going to be able to teach what you might, I mean, I, mean, you know, I, don't, I don't like the phrase much, but kind of what you might call a systematic approach to doctrine in the sense that he'll be able to give you a, a fairly broad understanding of what you might call the philosophy of the Bible. You know, he'll fit, how does, you know, how does atonement fit in with propitiation? Oh, frightened words already. But he'll make it simple. He'll make it real simple, you see. Um, you know, sort of, oh, you know, goodness, how does, how does being baptised in the Spirit fit in with, with this? Um, oh, goodness, you know, how does church fit in with, now, how does being a good husband fit in with my role? Can you see, whatever it is, you know, what does chosenness mean? Or, you know, all this kind of stuff. He'll be able to, to give you a grasp, obviously over a period of time, of what you might call the whole counsel of God. But on the other hand, he won't just be doing mere doctrinal teaching. Because the Bible is far more than just the doctrinal truth, if you like. He will also be able to teach you what you might call the life principles that we see in Scripture that are going to immediately prophetically relate to what you're going through now. These are the two aspects of Bible teaching that need to be together all the time. There's doctrinal teaching, and that needs to all the time be going on, but there's what I call prophetic teaching, by which I simply mean God's now word. The truth from Scripture that you need to hear at this moment. These are the two aspects of what a pastor teacher is teaching wherever he is um, in regards to that aspect of his ministry. And of course, when he's doing his travelling thing, I mean, you know, he might be for a period of time with one church 
in an area. He might be with a group of churches in an area. Um, and Or even if he's with one church, he might be spending most time, you know, teaching the people in that church, but then they might decide, well, okay, one day we'll have something, we'll advertise it and try and bring others in and see if they can be blessed. Can you see, there's, you know, variety is the spice of life here. But the point is that he's teaching you the whole counsel of God. And he's therefore teaching you the doctrine aspect that you need. But he's not merely teaching lifeless doctrine. He's bringing to you the word of life. What God is saying through scripture to you now. And the number of times when, you know, sort of like, you know, I've been at places and taught, you know, maybe, you know, for instance, looking at someone's life in the Old Testament and seeing how the way God dealt with them. You know, wow, this is what he's doing in us now. And this is why you're going through such a hard time. This is why that's happening. People say, how did you know? And you say, how did I know what? How did you know everything we're going through? And I said, I didn't. I just brought the teaching that I felt God had laid on my heart. Can you see, this is the broad spectrum of what the teacher is doing. Now, let me say as well, he will obviously teach you his very best understanding of Scripture. Of course, what else could he teach you? But it doesn't mean he's right in everything either. You see what I mean? So it's vitally important, and if he's a biblical teacher, he'll actually teach you this. As he teaches you, he'll teach you why you must never accept anything just because he says it. He'll actually teach you in such a way that he will prevent you just hanging on to his teaching. So good Bible teaching, biblical Bible teaching, is not merely demonstrating what the teacher thinks the Bible says, although that's part of it, but it's teaching people what the Bible says in such a way that it's giving them what they need to test it for themselves, and if they're not persuaded that the teacher is right, the teacher is empowering them to say, then I'm not going to accept that, what you say there, I'm not persuaded. And the teacher will smile and say, this is, this is good stuff. Never be passive when it comes to receiving Bible teaching. The teacher, a Bible teacher, can only teach you his best understanding. And if you really think he's way off beam, well, presumably you're not going to invite him back, and that's fair enough. But the point is, he will teach, he will demonstrate, he will persuade from Scripture, but he will never issue doctrinal diktats. In fact, he will teach you how to be strong enough to totally disagree with him if you think he's wrong. And he'll be teaching you at the same time that that's okay and that it doesn't matter. And I would rather that someone disagreed with something I said because they had gone into Scripture and been convinced by Scripture that I'm wrong than someone who just says, oh, Beresford, I think what you said is wonderful. Because they're passive. No. The teacher equips you ultimately to find out from Scripture for yourself. Now the other aspect, because this pastor teach, this is why I'm saying this is one, one man. It's not that some are pastors and some are teachers. These are two sides of the same coin. He pastors. Now, I would not want to let a man loose 
on any church who was a good teacher but didn't have the gift of the pastor. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I mean someone who's not just a theorist. And there are men who have a good grasp of doctrine, but they're theorists. I'm not saying that they don't, in their individual relationship with the Lord, have a good relationship with the Lord. I don't mean that. But they're not people persons. You see the difference? Because the pastor teacher will not just teach you, he'll get alongside you. He'll actually become part of your life. And the reason he does that is not because he's telling you to, anything like that. It's because you feel comfortable with him. It's, it's because you know here's someone who cares. It's not just that this guy knows the Bible. He actually loves me. He's actually concerned where I am. I could talk to this guy about the problems that I'm going through. He's not going to condemn me. He's going to help me. He's easy to get on with. I mean, he's just a nice guy. I don't mean he's not a sinner. I don't, I'm not painting the picture he's Mr. Perfect. Can't all be like me. <laughs> Next year I'll speak on humility. No, but the point is, if a guy has a pastor's heart, that's what he is. He's someone who cares about you and someone that is easy to relate to. And the wonderful thing about Scripture is it puts these two things together, pastor and teacher. These are two aspects of the one calling. Deliver us from people. I mean, you know, one of the things I observe in biblical churches, uh, sorry, in unbiblical churches, and I've observed it for many years, are the way you get these people, they're real good at teaching, they're real good at lecturing, they're real good at telling you the truth and what you ought to be doing. Ain't got the time of day for you personally. And if they did that, they're awkward. You know what I mean? Because we've put a premium merely on the intellectual grasp of doctrine, and that's wrong. This is why a lot of people, the reason, otherwise Bible-believing Christians, the reason they reject something like house church, they think, well, where are your experts? Where are your pastors with all their degrees? And I say, well, that's how we emptied the churches, by degrees. <laughs> because we have theory, whereas what this is talking about is imparting the life of Jesus. Now, why can someone impart the life of Jesus to someone else? Why can you, if you're a believer, why can you impart the life of Jesus to someone else? Well, I'll tell you, because he's living in you. That is what we're talking about here. He'll bring counsel, advice, he'll be available. But again, it will only be because you ask him to. He won't be imposing anything. He won't be trying to worm his way into your head. He'll just be there. You know, and if you want to catch up on Star Trek together, that's one of my favourite pastimes, as you all know, then that's fine. But if there's something you want to talk about, to share, to say, hey, will you pray, help me, I don't know what to do, then as easily as if you were talking about, hey, you know, weren't Star Trek great last week, as easily as that, you'll be able to open yourself up because you know, hey, this guy's son, he loves me. And of course, this is why, and, 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 and this... This is so important where we're going now. This is why it's so important that this guy is a recognised elder back home. Now remember, we've seen that there are the hardcore apostolic ministries. They're bringing people to Jesus 
and then they're, as it were, they're, they're the elders until that church has got their own elders and then they move on. By definition, they're not elders, okay? Because they're nowhere long enough. But what's interesting as well, what else do we see about the hardcore apostles? They're single and they always work in teams. Because that's their accountability. What's so important about this other aspect of this Ephesians 4 ministries is that this guy, you know, he's a recognized elder back home. Because he's living it out. He's not just a theist. He's not just someone going around with the gift of the gab, as we say in England. He's actually someone who is in accountability to his brothers and sisters at whatever church he's part of. He's living it out. And you can therefore know that um, you know, he, he, he's sunk. If what people teach, however biblical it is, if it's not grounded in their personal ongoing experience, it is of no value. It is just theory. Now I have to tell you that I have increasing concern about something that I'm seeing a lot on what you might call the house church scene. And it's the increasing number of teachers out there who are going around teaching house church, traveling all over the place teaching house church for whatever reason, who aren't these mainstream apostles. I'm not talking about people who are leading people to the Lord, forming them into churches and raising up leadership. No, I'm talking about people traveling around teaching existing believers, such as I'm doing to you now, who aren't actually elders in a church back home. And some of them have maybe been doing house church for a couple of years. And suddenly they're the big experts. And they're traveling around teaching but with no accountability. Because they're not actually, they're not a functioning, recognized elder in a situation back home. Or maybe even if they are part of a church back home, you know, it started last November, and they've managed to punch the book out in six months, and now they're getting a name for themselves as a teacher on the house church. Then. And they've maybe got a year or two of experience on how, in a house church. Let me tell you, in the first two years of doing house church, you haven't begun to understand what you're going to go through in future years together. It's rather like people who get married. If there's one thing you need to understand about marriage, it's that when two people get married, they haven't got the foggiest idea what they're doing. They'll find that out later. But they've got the love. But can you imagine people who have been married for a year or two going around conducting marriage seminars? And I am genuinely concerned about this. But can you imagine people who have been married for a year or two going around conducting marriage seminars? And I am genuinely concerned about this. People who can get a book out get a website going, produce a magazine, and suddenly they're gurus. And of course, what's happening here, this is unbiblical church simply remanifesting itself in the so-called biblical church scheme of things. 
Because what we see in Scripture is that these itinerant ministries are elders back home. They have a track record. And if someone was to say to me, you know, hey, Beres, but I really feel a calling to, you know, kind of like this Ephesians 4, and I feel I'm a teacher. I really feel a calling to be out there teaching about biblical church. I see it in the Bible. And, oh, yeah, I've got to get it. I've got to teach it. Beres would, what do I do next? And I'd say, either start a biblical church and be part of it for three or four years. Or... If there's a biblical church you know of, be part of that for three or four years. And then start thinking, Lord, have I learned enough now from practical experience to share with others? Can you see? But I'd say, don't write a book. Well, feel free to write it, but don't try and publish it. You write away. Might keep you out of trouble. I mean, by the time I was 25, I'd written about 10 books. They'll never be published. But it did stop me from hanging around street corners. So yeah, you, you go write your book. But don't publish it. Oh no, and please, no, no, let's not have a house church magazine. And oh no, please, don't, 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 don't get a website. You know, how to start a biblical church. Because you haven't done it yet. And you might have got a house church going, but I want to know, where will that be in five years? Where will that be in five years? You know, if somebody said, well, oh, Beresford, you know, how are we supposed to know that you know what you're talking about? And I say, well, because I've been part of the biblical church for 16 years. I've been doing biblical church for 25 years. The first time that I, I was invited to come and speak at, you know, this Southern House Church conference, it was in the next town along. But yes, Steve and I have been, you know, sort of put in touch by each other through an intermediary. Yeah, you know, it's great. I was thrilled about what was going on. And I mean, I was especially thrilled when they, okay, they'd heard some tapes and they said, will you come and teach what, what you know, come and teach this stuff. This is in 1999. Apparently, I, I, I gave Les a heart attack just because just of how I was dressed. I think my shirt nearly killed Les. Oh, goodness, what's this guy going to be saying? And I really admire them. I could have been any flake. I could have been anything just because I'd done some tapes that they liked. They took a great risk on me. And, and I, I thank them for that. But obviously, they became satisfied that I wasn't a flake. But when I came over here, because of course the other side of this is that you could have all been a bunch of flakes too. I had no way of knowing. But I thought, well, I'll risk it. And if I find out if this is, I mean, Deep South, if this is a Ku Klux Klan meeting, well, I'll just make sure I know where the exit door is, you know. And, but I, yeah. But what I was thrilled about is obviously the people I got to know initially, obviously, was Steve and Les and Dan and their families. Now, I found in them exactly what I was looking for in order to be reassured that these guys are kosher. That's not racist, is it? I say kosher, is it? Believe it or not, last year, you might not know this, in Atlanta, they actually opened a Jewish topless bar. No skullcaps. Oh, think about it. No, English, English humour, I do apologise. <laughs> That's terrible, isn't it? I do, I do apologise. But, but what I, I found is, was, was, was three guys who had for years been part of biblical churches that they'd helped start. And they'd been there for years. They'd passed the test of time. These were not fly-by-nights trying to make a bit of a name for themselves in ministry. 
They'd gone through the pain. They'd gone. You hear of people who'd proven themselves and who were clearly functioning as elders in a church back home that they've been part of for a long time. Now that is what needs to be true of people before you receive them in itinerant ministry. There are plenty of mavericks out there on the house church scene. There are plenty of loose cannons out there. They're trying to make a name for themselves as teachers. And in this age of instant communication, if you package yourself properly, it's easy to do. Just the day we flew in, we got in Wednesday afternoon, to find someone waiting to see me. Someone I'd met in England a couple of times, they'd come to visit me and on one occasion at church on a second occasion. And uh, traveling around, doing a tour of America, teaching about house church. Tied in with some names that a lot of you here would know of and appreciate. And here he is wanting to see me. Living apart from his wife, because they're temporarily separated. Traveling with another woman, who isn't his wife. Travelling around America, wherever he can drum up invitations, teaching about biblical church. And obviously wanting to be in with me and anyone else he can get his hands on to bolster that. Sad guy, pray for him. I'm going to tell you who he is. Pray for him. But can you see what I mean? The Bible says that in order for someone to be qualified to be an elder, certain things need to be true. Because otherwise you're not safe. And there are people out there with no accountability anywhere. They're going around, the big experts, not even part of a biblical church. I've met people, you know, they, they, they planted several house churches and that's absolutely great. I don't go to any of them. On a Sunday, they're not going anywhere. I mean, you know, they might visit this church. All right, okay, we'll go see how they're doing. But they're not actually part of any of these churches. You see, the problem is they're only existing in a relationship of leadership. The whole idea is before anything else, you're just a brother back home. You're not a leader, you're a brother back home. And yet there are people who just want to be leaders. And the problem is that there we have unbiblical understanding of leadership coming in and compromising, endangering what God is doing in bringing people back to a very much more biblical expression. So let me say that when it comes to itinerant ministry and receiving ministry from the outside, it's important that we do. But I've got to say, be careful. Make sure these guys are elders back home. Make sure they have a track record. Make sure they've been doing it for a few years. Make sure they're not a newlywed, just back from their honeymoon, teaching at the marriage seminar you've just come to. Tremendously important. Now, let me say equally important, do not for one moment think that any of us are saying that the only kosher people doing this are somehow tied in with us and what's happening here. Nonsense. I hope, convinced, there are loads of people out there. We've never met them. We've never heard of them. 
But they are legitimate Ephesians 4 ministries in biblical churches back home helping others. So please don't think in any way at all we're saying um, you know that sort of it's uh, you know sort of you've got to be tied. No, no, no. Anything that locks you up to particular groups of people is bad. Okay. So, so anyone will do as long as they meet the biblical criteria. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, be aware, and I just want to give you some tests. All right. Beware of anyone in itinerant ministry who, in any way, looks like they want something from you. For instance, they might want money. Itinerant ministry comes free. Itinerant travelling ministries, well, like any ministry that's biblical, they work free. They don't charge. They pay for it themselves. They do so at their own expense. They do not ask for money. It is entirely contrary to Scripture to seek financial gain for your ministry. Totally. Okay, yeah, responsibility of saints to share with these guys. I mean, obviously, yeah, it's, it's your gifts, but the point is they ain't asking because they know the Lord's going to provide for them. And can you imagine being in a position where there's maybe a group of people and they really need itinerant ministry? They really do, but they haven't got two cents to rub together. Are groups of people like that not going to get itinerant ministry because we're going to be asking for money? No way! The Lord provides for those men in full-time ministry who he has called. And I'll tell you what they do about money. They pray. That's all they do. They work free at their own expense. They're not trying to get you to take collections for them. They're not saying, well, I'm going to need expenses. They'll just buy the ticket and they'll come if they believe that it's right and if you've invited them. Money does not come into it. So if they're after money, they have biblically disqualified themselves. Now, there are people out there that soon you realise they want you as another church under their care. Because they're putting their ministerial CV together. Do you know what I mean? They're putting their, their ministerial um, portfolio together. And they want you to be one of the churches that they can say is under their apostolic oversight. So, if they want you to be promoting their ministry, raising them up, they've disqualified themselves physically. They are there to serve you. One of the most profound things that I learned, and I learned it the hard way, and it was fairly soon after the Lord got me into the full-time thing, as it were, and I learned it by realising what evil was in my heart. The Lord showed me that the idea was that any ministry he'd given me was there for other people's benefit. And he showed me that what was in my heart is that I was needing other people for my benefit so I could function. I had a vested interest amongst those I was ministering to and that's absolutely completely wrong. You don't exist for these guys' benefit. They purely exist for your benefit, you see. So if they're wanting something from you, whether it's financial or ministerial, bolstering or something like that, no, they're, they're disqualifying themselves. And remember that what these guys are doing, 
is they're not coming in to do the work of the ministry. They're coming in to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Far from coming in to keep you somehow dependent on their ongoing ministry, they're coming in to help you not need it half so much. Okay? They'll always be there, and it's great to have them come through, but they're not in any way using you to keep their ministry going. I hope you can see what I'm trying to say there, because otherwise they're not safe. So the point is, if you ever have an itinerant ministry, whether you've invited him or just happen upon him and say, oh, well, come and, you know, if someone comes amongst you, if they really are a blessing, and if you discover, yeah, here is a man who really is biblically in order, he's an elder back up, and he's really been a blessing, then feel free to pray about if the Lord wants to, you know, you to say to other people, well, yeah, ha have this boy and he can really help you. But if someone comes in and you realise, oh, he's dodgy in some way, then don't ask him back and don't, you know, don't recommend him to others, you see. All the time, the accountability of personal relationships. Now, there's just one other thing, very quickly, and I'm winding up now. This will be real quick that I want to show you. And it's to do with the qualification, not just of the pastor teacher, but, I mean, this is the qualification should be true of everyone. But it must be true of anyone in a leadership capacity. And I just want to, if you, if you just go to Luke 22, please don't forget me because I'm nearly there. Honestly, I am. Luke 22. Yeah, great, yeah. <laughs> last, last year, I, no, I think year before, I just got gonged on a point, and I just said, and my third point, something like that, and the gong went, it was all over, and Les Blessing said, what was your third point? <laughs> and he saved me. Right, okay, now in, in, in Luke, Luke 22, I've got Mark there, what am I doing? Luke, Luke 22, and in verse 31, this is, we'll get there quickly. Luke 22, it keeps moving, it keeps moving. Right, Luke, Luke 22 and verse 31, okay? And we read this. And back to Peter. Remember, Peter, kind of elder back home, he's the model of ministry we're homing in on here. Um, and uh, we have, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned back, strengthen your brethren. Now, the thing about Peter, Peter said, Lord, I'm going to die for you. I'll come and die for you. And he meant it. Bless him, he meant it. But what Peter didn't realise is that with all the best will in the world, he just did not have it in him to be like Jesus. Because none of us had. And so Peter had all these grand intentions, but Jesus said, I'm going to set Satan on you. And do you know what he's going to do? He's going to sift you like wheat. How do you sift wheat? You give it a good beating and all the rubbish comes out, all right? These are the trials that the Holy Spirit puts us through. This is the dark night of the soul, man. Okay? It's so important. And Peter got a good thrashing because he was put in a position where he had the chance to come up to his promise to Jesus. I'll die with you. And as Jesus was actually being led out of the high priest's house away to his death, Peter was busy denying he knew him. And he, his eyes met Jesus. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now go to John 21. Remember, this is... Peter. And Jesus has said, Peter, you're going to strengthen my brethren. That's what pastor teacher does. And he said, but Satan is going to sift you like weak. And he said, when you've turned back, turned back from what? Turned back from failure and sin. And in John 21, look what we read. 
John 21 and verse 15. Remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. And uh, John 21 verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? First time. Yes, Lord, he said, I know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Now, the word feed there is bosco, and it just means to feed, right? And I put it to you that teaching is giving people the milk and meat of the word. You feed believers by teaching them scripture, right? Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Number two. Peter denied Jesus three times. This is number two. Do you love me? You sure? Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Do you know what the word there for take care is? Poimena, pastor. That's the other aspect of being a pastor teacher, caring for them individually, being a people person available for them. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. He said, Lord, you know all things, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And that's Bosco again, to feed. And what Jesus is doing here, as he said, Peter, before you can be the the, have the ministry that I've called you to, Satan is going to sift you like wheat. I'm going to thrash you, Peter. You don't understand the truth of your own heart yet, but I'm going to show you. You don't know how sinful you are yet. You're a success. And Jesus showed him what an utter, total failure it was. Peter failed totally. And it was only after he failed, and it was only after Jesus reminded him of his failure, that Jesus said, now, go and do the ministry I've called you to do. And my last sentence here is simply this. The reason that Peter was so full of Jesus because he was so broken. And it made him safe. Can you see? Because if you're going to lead, you, you can't lead anywhere, where anyone anywhere you haven't been yourself. And if you're going to help people grow in the Lord, you're going to help them through their failure, through their sin. And the trouble with Peter is that he thought he was a success. And he had to learn that he was just the same as the people he was going to lead. And the Lord broke him. How could Peter ever have condemned anyone after that when he'd seen the truth of his sin? And so I put it to you that with these Ephesians 4 ministries, yeah, elder at home and everything like that, but can you say, make sure that they're broken men too. By which I mean they're safe. Because they're not coming in doing a big leadership thing. Hey, my life's all together. I've got it together now. I'm going to tell you how to do it. They're coming in as men who know the brokenness that you feel. They know the bitter failure that you go through as a believer. And they can help you because, yeah, they've known that bitter failure themselves. But they've found the grace of Jesus in it. And they've discovered that however much they failed, what it's shown them is, it was never meant to be them living the Christian life anyway. In fact, Jesus wanted it to not be them, and he wanted it to be him living it through them. But in order for Jesus to live through you, you have to die yourself. I'll take questions.
Yes, there are. Yes, Dan. Right. Okay. I think with with the Ephesians. Yeah. Yeah. What Dan, Dan, Dan's saying? How do I know that the Ephesians four thing is just the pastors and teachers who travel a lot? Yeah. Um, I think also. I mean, again, with the travel, there are going to be situations where maybe you have groups of churches in the media area, and I think there are going to be elders who share themselves out with other churches who don't have their own elders yet. So they may not be travelling in the sense of long distances or other countries or stuff like that, but they may be travelling. I mean, they might never have to sleep away from their own beds. Everything they do may be local. But I think the point is, you know, that what, what we've got here is clearly something wider than someone who is just an elder in a church and their ministry is there. That, that, that's the point. No, that's right, that's right. So, so merely the, 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 if you want to take the idea of a man being an elder, simply being an elder is not the same as the Ephesian 4 ministry. Because, for instance, with an elder, who's just an elder locally in a local church, although we know from Paul's qualifications for eldership, he must be apt to teach. When we look at these Ephesians 4 elders, we see it's past the teacher. This is someone who has the anointing of both. And also, what I was trying to show from 1 Timothy 5, is because there we have elders released into full-time ministry are those who labour in preaching and teaching. And so the point is, your average elder, there's such a thing, but the, 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 the average elder in a church is not going to need to be full-time. He's well able to have a secular job. And indeed, thank heavens he has. Because, I mean, how are you going to learn like too much from people like me about how to handle the problems you get in secular work. I don't handle those problems. I have a set of my own <laughs> that, that sometimes I say people wouldn't dream of. But the point is the idea that all leadership is full-time is ridiculous. No, the vast majority of elders are bivocational. But here we're simply looking at those men who have a ministry that can serve a wide area and, and, you know, and really be a blessing to, to far more than just his own church or maybe just the churches in his immediate area. That, that's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, we got the portable mic. That's your question into the microphone. Seth, there's some right back there. So that's uh, how we get recorded. Yeah, I appreciate some of your points there. Um, does this have anything to do with Titus chapter 1 where it talks about elders being appointed in every city and they have a set of qualifications yeah. Then it goes on a few verses later to say, a bishop, therefore, must be blameless, yes. the overseer. And so you're talking about kind of the equation of a past of, of a, an overseer, elder, bishop. And yeah. yet here there's two different ideas. Yeah, we've, we've got, I mean, to me, the important point here is that in order to receive Ephesians 4 type ministries, now we've seen there are the hardcore apostles who are working with people they've brought to the Lord, and they're always in teams. Now, obviously, they're qualified as elders, except they're not married, so that bit doesn't apply to them. Obviously, such men would still make good elders because they come up with all the moral, spiritual qualifications of an elder, but they're not an elder anywhere because they're travelling all the time. But they're in teams, so they've still got accountability. What I'm talking about are travelling ministries, I suppose much like myself, 
who are going to already existing churches. I mean, I'm not a church planter. I'm not, I'm not someone bringing people to the Lord and forming them into churches. Sometimes I'm approached by people who have come to the Lord and they want help to become a church. Yeah, I can do that. But the point is, with ministries such as I'm talking about, what I'm saying is, if such men are not recognised elders in a church situation back home and have been for some years, what credibility do they have? What accountability do they have? How do you know they're not mere theorists? How do you know that this woman they're travelling with isn't actually their wife? Can you see what I'm saying? And, and, and so the point that I'm trying to make is that if, if you ever as churches receive itinerant ministries, what I'm saying is be discerning and be careful. Your evaluation of these people needs to be what Scripture teaches. And I'm saying just be careful of the roaming ministry who doesn't actually seem to be a significant part of any church himself and who only seems to be in a situation where they're doing a leadership thing. You see, for me personally, here I am, okay, I'm doing a leadership thing. This is, this is a tiny part of what I do. I mean, you know what, nine months of the year I'm just at home, on the local scene. And of course, when you're an elder in a church, you're not a big leader, so that's not how we work, it's interactive, it's, you see. But when you get people who everything they're doing all the time is big leadership thing, I'm just saying, be careful. Be careful. Because, you know, how do you know about their accountability and their track record? So, you know, but also I'm saying be careful of the guy. He may be an elder in a church back home that got going last week. You know what I mean? Remember, would you go to a marriage seminar when you've been married a few years, or even if you were newlyweds, or even if you just got engaged or something, would you go to a marriage seminar where the people taking it had only just got married? Probably not. And I'm saying that's what scripture would have a supply to itinerant ministries. Make sure they have a track record. Make sure that they are elders. Yeah. Oh, sorry, John. Yeah, microphone. Oh, sorry. Is, does that... You know, that passage says a bishop must be blameless as a steward. Mm. I think the Greek word is there is householder. And so I was going to ask you, because I think that there's a distinction in the scripture that all elders... May not, uh, elders may not necessarily be bishops, but bishops are necessarily elders. They're a steward of a particular locality. It sounds like what you're saying there. Um, a bishop may be an overseer, but he's overseeing something. And because it goes on here, I, I don't know if you, you get what I'm saying. Oh, there. right. Yeah, you've oh, made yeah. a little distinction there between the two, the, the translocal, as you call it. Oh, right. When, and, right. And also when yeah, when Paul writes to Titus, he talks about elders and then bishops. Right. Now, what I'd say to that is he's simply using these interchangeable words. Um, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, I mean, sort of like, you know, we all do that in speech if there are different words that refer to the same thing. And I think the point is that what we see in regards to elders is they are pastors because that defines their function relative to individuals in the church, but they're overseers because that defines their function in regards to the church as a corporate body. You oversee a group of people, you pastor individuals. So I would certainly argue that bishop, elder, pastor is, is all the same thing. And, uh, you know, I mean, sort of certainly if you, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm no biblical scholar, but if you turn to real good accredited biblical scholarship, 
Um, and, and, and I mean, I'm meaning people who weren't or aren't house church or anything to do with it. They are all in complete agreement that, that certainly when it comes to what the New Testament teaches, that those phrases were completely interchangeable. So it wasn't that there were elders and there were bishops. Bishops were elders, were pastors. And, uh, you know, so I think that when it, you know, it comes to that point, even people who, shall we say, don't buy into what we're teaching here at this conference, they certainly agree that in the early church, elder, pastor, overseer were simply interchangeable terms for the same people, simply describing different parts of their function. And, of course, they're called elders because that's their qualification, maturity, stability in the law. John, we need a mic here. Oh, sorry, sorry, someone was ahead of you. Now we'll get this one. Yeah. Bar Barrisford, you know that you'd be welcome to teach at our fellowship anytime. But I, uh, bless you. I have a question. Uh, when I worked in the secular uh, world as, a, as an engineer, occasionally our company would spend an awful lot of money to go out and hire someone that they called a consultant, mm. considered to be an expert that did the same job I did in someone else's company. They'd bring him into our company, and all of a sudden I was to give him great tribute and respect because uh, he was the consultant. Now my problem is this, uh, we're talking about someone who's coming in to a house church as a, uh, as a teacher, an elder. Right, yeah. He's coming in as a, uh, as a pastor and teacher. Yeah. We're all familiar in the, in the institutional system with the with the hierarchy, the, the, the area pastor, mm. the, the, the expert. What keeps the house church from thinking of this uh, troubleshooter, mm. this uh, um, itinerant expert yeah. uh, as being the, the, uh, the area bishop, the yeah. one higher up the scale, the one that we really have to pay attention to? Isn't yeah. there a potential danger here? There certainly is, and it all boils down to the fact that if 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 what I'm taught, if someone comes along who is biblically a pastor teacher, then any such notion is part of what they're very early on going to be teaching you. So the point is that they're going to be making it very very clear that they are merely coming in, you know, at a particular time to help out, and that is all. And then they're going to move along, and they may never ever come back again. You have not become a church under their pastoral care. And the safety mechanism is that they're not with you for very long. And that's the safety mechanism. Now, any time you get someone who they may have various churches that call them in, in you know, sort of like as an outside, you know, teacher, if you ever see them then trying to coordinate these churches together under the umbrella of their ministry, now it's time to stop inviting them. You know, can you see the point? They're not coming in any way to you as being over you in the Lord. They're coming in as a brother to help out. And more than that, they're coming in with the clear understanding that they're not there to tell you what to do. Indeed, they must submit to whatever consensus of your church is. You know, can you see what I mean? They have no right to be telling you what to do. 
All they can do is to, to share from Scripture and persuade you on the basis of Scripture, and if you're persuaded, well then the advice can be taken. But I think the point is that what, what we do see in Scripture is that these itinerant ministries were a very important part of New Testament church life. But of course, the thing that they understood that has long since got lost, thank you early church fathers circa 1900 years ago, is that they don't have any authority over churches because no one does. The only person to have authority over church is Jesus. And therefore, these guys, all they're going to be, they're going to be teaching you, but anything that needs to be decided or commented on, they're going to teach you that it's your responsibility to do that as a church consensually. They're also going to say, if there's anything that I teach or advise that you don't think squares up with Scripture, then please don't do it. They're not gonna. They're not gonna get the ump with you and go. Oh, they're not doing what I say. They don't want you to do what they say. They want you to do what Scripture says, and they want you to look to Jesus and His authority, not them. And you know if you've got someone amongst you who's like that, in the same way that you know if you've got someone amongst you who's doing a big ministry thing. I've got to go to John next because he's he's been. Okay, I'll come come to later after. So John. You know, I was wondering, in light of uh, 1 Corinthians 9.5, uh, do we not have the right to take a believing wife along with us? It says, do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas. Uh, wouldn't it seem like your distinction but that the uh, hardcore folks were single is a little hard and fast? I mean, it seems like some of these were hardcore apostles, but they had wives. All right, yes. I were elders in. He moved into town with his family by faith yep. and started a church completely just out of nothing. Oh, right, yeah. You know, uh, and then you got Hudson Taylor's missionaries who started churches all over, uh, you know, all over China, um, you know, were married. So, yeah, yeah. The point I'm trying to home in on is that the distinction between Peter as an apostle and Paul as an apostle, and I'm not saying that Peter wasn't an apostle just like Paul, he was. The difference was that Paul was never an elder. Peter precisely was. So the point is, what we know is that Peter was largely, at least for a, a large part of his life, was located in one church, or he couldn't have been an elder. Whereas Paul was only ever located in one church for a good period of time when he was a young believer being prepared by the Lord for the future ministry he had. But let me say as well, and, you know, and it is interesting, Paul, Timothy, Titus, they were all unmarried people. But let me say, the point about that is not the travelling, the point about that is being away from your family too much. So if you have a situation where someone is travelling all the time but their family is with them, then obviously home, as far as I'm concerned, is where your family is. So I'm not trying to say that there's something wrong with constantly travelling ministries apostolically, planting churches from scratch. I'm not saying it's that, that just because they're married, that's not biblical, but if they were away from their family all the time, that would be the problem. But yeah, if there are people who can travel with their family and they're together, because of course at the heart of any qualification for leadership that applies you know, to a married man is that he's family life must be in order. Otherwise, he's disqualified. I've been gonged. Okay, thank you very much for listening.
You have been listening to one of six plenary sessions from the 2004 Southern House Church Conference held at Southern Wesleyan University in Central South Carolina. Permission is hereby freely granted to reproduce these tapes. For additional information about New Testament church life, log on to www.ntrf.org 